Happy Father's Day. We, um, today, being Father's Day, we thought it would be appropriate to speak on uh, the topic of a father. And I'm not going to do what I did to uh, my wife and talk about myself this time. <laughs> what we're really going to talk about today is a really odd father in the Bible. This guy is odd. Odd means unusual. It means abnormal. It means out of the ordinary. And a person is considered to be odd when you compare them to other people who are not odd. They're normal. And we have a tendency to judge people by the way we are. We all tend to think of ourselves as being normal. We're normal and so we surround ourselves with people like us who are also normal and everybody who isn't like us is just odd. Okay? And that's kind of the way we think. They're odd. Well, this fellow was, well, odd. I mean, he was. He wasn't like anyone else. Most people in our society dress a certain way. And so that we don't stand out in the crowd, we dress the same way. You don't want to appear, you know, odd. We uh, don't want to have unusual hair. Some of us can't help <laughs> the hair we don't have. But we want to talk a certain way. We want to uh, be certain that we don't stand out in the crowd and be considered abnormal odd. We want to be popular. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be odd. This father was odd, and he was odd in several ways. One of the ways he was odd is that he believed things that no one else believed. He believed things that no one else believed. How about you? Do you believe things that it seems like no one else believes? seems like the whole world today believes in evolution, for example. Do you? If not, you're odd. You're different. Do you believe that it is appropriate that this week in California it's legal to have same-sex marriages? Do you believe that it's right? And you're shaking your head. You're odd. Statistically, you're odd. Now, they did surveys in the country, and most of the people in the country believe that it's wrong. But they also did surveys in the Bay Area, and most of the people in the Bay Area think it's right. So if you live in the Bay Area and you think it's wrong, you're odd. The news stations no longer report the news. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. They report surveys. Okay, And so the whole idea of a survey is that you take a poll and whichever way the mop flops, whichever way the wind blows, if you're not with the majority, you're odd. And most of the time when I see these surveys, I'm odd. I'm different than the rest. And I hope you are too. Let me ask you a question or two. <clears throat> when you're in a crowd and the conversation is unwholesome, what do you do? 
Do you speak out against it? Or do you just go along for the ride? Maybe participate with it. Do you join right in as one of them? Or do you hold your tongue so that people think that you're just like them? Do you speak against it? If you do, you're odd. You may have heard phrases like this. Everyone is doing it. Everyone is doing it. My mother used to say when we said things like that, well, if everyone jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, would you? You know, And that kind of ended the argument. Some of you mothers still use that, right? <laughs> this go-with-the-crowd mentality has plagued the human race. It affects our music. It affects our literature. It affects our dress. It affects the way we raise our kids. We are brand-driven from the shoes that we wear to the coffee that we drink. We go with the flow. We go with the crowd. Whatever everyone is doing, everyone's doing it, so we have to do it too. Otherwise, we're odd. And anyone who doesn't do it is just plain and simple odd. Do you know, it may seem like a stretch to you, but this same go-with-the-flow mentality, the same attitude, even brought the atrocities of Nazi Germany. If you follow the logic of it, it brought the atrocities of Nazi Germany. And in our character study this morning, we have an odd man. He's a father who stood out in contrast to the whole world who was marching to their own tune. He was so different that he saw what everyone else in the world was doing and said, it's wrong, it's wrong. He did not follow the crowd. In fact, he stood against the crowd. And of course, you've already guessed his name by now. His name is, well, Jesus is one too. <laughs> okay, it's Noah. Yeah, he did not follow the crowd. By the way, here we are some four to 5,000 years later and whose name do we remember from that time? Members of the crowd or the one who stood against the crowd? We remember Noah. Here's God's description of the people of Noah's day. Let's take a look at it in Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> We've spent a couple of weeks looking at Noah, primarily looking at the... Um, times in which Noah lived and in God's destruction of the people. But today we want to concentrate more on the character of the man. And uh, this is the conditions that he lived in. So Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to read starting with verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, The earth uh, is that right? Verse 11. Okay. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy. Uh, um, I'm gonna, I guess I skipped over a couple verses here, didn't I? I went back and forth here. I'm sorry. 
the way I had it written was, uh, I wanted to make a point there. Anyway, so the point here is that, uh, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He goes on to talk about the generation, the genealogy, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And God said to Noah, at the end of, sorry, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The point here is this, that everyone in the world was in the same condition. They were all described as being the same. They all went with the flow. They all went with the crowd. They were all following each other. Their hearts, all of them, their hearts were filled with evil thoughts. He says, all flesh has corrupted their way on the earth, and they were all filled with violence. Everyone was doing it. It was accepted. It was the right thing to do in their thinking. And then comes along this odd guy, Noah. And he doesn't march to that tune. He doesn't march to the tune of the crowd or march with the crowd. He stands up against them. And he took a stand against the whole world. The whole world. How would you like to have Noah as your father? A little hard, huh? A little unusual. Someone who doesn't act like everyone else acts. He doesn't think like everyone else thinks. And he doesn't believe like everyone else believes. You know, your father is different. He's unusual. He's abnormal. He's out of the ordinary. He's just odd. That's Noah. You know, we value the opinion of people so much that we are willing to compromise what we believe just to be accepted by the crowd. Noah wasn't like that. And God looked upon all humanity, saw the corruption of all mankind, and it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We read that Noah walked with God. He was like Enoch who walked with God. A few weeks ago we talked about what it means to walk with God. And he was like Enoch who walked with God. So I'm not going to repeat repeat it here. If you didn't get if you didn't if you weren't here for that sermon, talk to Luke, get the CD afterward. It's clear from this that Noah believed in God, that he offered the necessary sacrifice for his sins, and uh, as God had prescribed, Noah's faith in God is about to be rewarded. God is going to destroy the entire world with a flood, all living creatures uh, that breathe air are going to be destroyed, animals and mankind, and Noah alone with his own family is going to be saved. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is actually the first time the word grace is mentioned in the Bible. Grace is God's undeserved favor. And it's really a very striking contrast for that word to appear here. The blackness of the darkness of man's sin is seen and then it's, God stops, puts a, puts a uh, uh, period, and says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In contrast to the whole human race, God demonstrated his, un, his undeserved favor to one man and his family. Noah was a sinner. You can't get around that. He was a sinner. But he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He believed in God, and God demonstrated his grace to him. 
You know, it's interesting to, to see this in Scripture. God destroys, God punishes the unrighteous or the wicked, and He spares the righteous over and over and over again in Scripture. This is one account of it here. But over and over again, He does that. He does not destroy the righteous with the wicked, He says. In fact, Abraham prayed this way to the Lord when the Lord was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, Lord, it is not like you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he used that as his appeal to the Lord to spare the cities, and particularly to spare um, Lot and his family. It's not like you to do that. And, and here is evidence of that, that it is not like God to destroy the righteous with the wicked. He pulls the righteous out. He saves them before he destroys the, the wicked. There is coming a time, and it's very near, when the Lord will destroy this earth once again. He has promised that he will never destroy the earth again with a flood, but he is going to destroy the earth with fire. We see that in the scripture. The signs of his coming are all over the place. We've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how the cyclone in in uh, Myanmar, we talked about the uh, devastating earthquake in China. Right after we talked about that, there was another devastating earthquake in Greece. Yet again, there was a, a series of them in Nevada. There was another one yesterday, I believe it was, in Japan. And the signs of his coming are like shots across the bow of this planet. And the Lord is saying, wake up, wake up. It's really going to happen. And just like we talked about with Noah and every hammer blow, he was saying to the world at that time, wake up, wake up. I'm serious. This is really going to happen. And so he's going to destroy the earth again. And it seems that just like in Noah's day, nobody pays attention. Nobody cares. But God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He has promised that he will come again and deliver believers out of this planet before he pours out his wrath upon us uh, during the seven-year tribulation period. The world, Jesus said, the population will be just like in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, having, getting married, just going about normal business. And they did that right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. It was no big deal. It was just business as usual. Everyone was doing it. And the same in planet Earth today. Everyone is just going their merry way. Nobody stops to think that just like the earth was destroyed once, it will be destroyed yet again. Evil thinkers and violent men will be prominent. Everyone will be doing it. His coming will be to spare the righteous and to destroy the wicked. Well, God told Noah, Luke, have you got ready to do that? Okay, God told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood, and he gave him instructions on how to build the ark. Uh, the ark was going to be, do we have uh, lights? The ark was going to be 450 to 500 feet long, depending on the length of the cubit. Cubits are measured, usually we, we figure 18 inches per cubit. And so the, this is a, a comparison chart just to show you the difference in size between Noah's ark and the Santa Maria, for example, or the Titanic or the Queen Mary. Uh, it really, Noah's Ark is probably the largest um, wooden vessel that was ever made. Now, some may find that there was something else bigger, but I, don't, I couldn't find anything bigger than that. Um, steel hull vessels, yes, but wooden, no. And so we have a picture here, just a, obviously it's a description or a, an artist's um, thought of how the Ark might have looked. It was to be made out of wood, 
a particular kind of wood that we don't know really what it is. Some say, some versions say gopher wood. Some say um, laminated wood is interesting uh, possibility in that as well. But the idea is it's a kind of wood that was going to be able to withstand it. And uh, he was to put pitch or bitumen, like a tarry substance, on the inside and on the outside of the ark. That would water seal it, water, make it watertight. Uh, so that it wouldn't leak during the uh, time that they were on the water. And God gave Noah all the details of the, of the ship. I, you know, a lot of people say, well, how could he have done something like that? The Bible is just giving us a cursory glance at what uh, God told Noah. There's no question in my mind that God told Noah the exact details of the ark and gave him the skill to make the ark. I have no, no problem with that whatsoever. The ark uh, in perspective, uh, as we have diagrammed here, shows the size in comparison to some of those ships. It's interesting that the um, the uh, ratio of length to width is actually the ratio they still use in shipbuilding today. It makes for the most stable of uh, ships. Now, I'm going to give you some numbers. If you like math, you can figure all this stuff out, but this, this may give you, sometimes it's hard for us to put in perspective the size of this vessel that we're talking about. And as a result, because people don't think it through, they go, well, the ark couldn't have possibly had that many animals or that many people, you know, and on and on they go. They think in terms of, you know, the toys that they get at, at, uh, Toys R Us, you know, there's, this little ark with men, you know, heads sticking out on top of it and the big giraffe, you know, that's three times the size of the ark. So it's not that way. There was a, a fellow in uh, Korea that is actually a, a shipbuilding engineer, and he did a lot of research on the dimensions and, and the weight and all this that it probably was. And these are some of the um, dimensions that he has. So I'm going to give you some numbers. A hundred cubic feet is a hundred feet one way, a hundred feet that way, and a hundred feet tall. That's a hundred cubic feet. Is that, no, hundred by hundred. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah. What am I saying? 10 by 10? Yeah. 10 by 10 by 1. That's right. Yeah. Is 100 cubic feet. Yeah, I was getting way off of my dimensions here. Anyway, 100 cubic feet is um, one gross ton. If you base the ark's measurements, the gross tonnage that, that there would be uh, based on the measurements of the ark, there would be 15,100 tons. So the ark volume would be 1,518,000 cubic feet of space. So what does that mean? Well, Arnold Mendez did some calculations from that. He says the ark's gross tonnage would be 15,100 tons. The ark's total volume, as I mentioned, would be 1.5 million cubic feet. This would be equal to the capacity of 569 railroad stock cars. So you see the trains going by. How many of you kids like to count the trains if you get stopped? You go one, two, yeah, Tom, all right, (laughs) all right. So we count the cars as they go by, right? How many of you have seen a car, a train uh, that is 569 cars long? Okay, you'd be there a long time. Do you know how far that is? five and a half miles of train cars, okay? That's how how big we're talking about. The floor space of the ark would be 
1,000 square feet. How big is your house? Okay. How many of your houses would fit in the ark? That's what we're talking about. Basically, 101 San Lorenzo homes would fit inside the ark. All right? They're roughly 1,000 square feet. This would be more floor space than 21 standard college basketball courts. By comparing the measurement of the ark, it's easy to see that it would be comparable to some of the ocean-going vessels of today. Um, the point of it is this. God gave him the measurements... And Noah did exactly what the Lord said to do. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, what were those things, by the way? Rain, okay, destruction of the whole world. Yeah, he'd never seen any of that stuff. He, God said that he was going to do this, and Noah said, okay, you're God, I believe you. That's what faith is. God said it, I believe it. You trust what God has to say. And so, being warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, it says, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And then we read in Genesis 6.22, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. You are sitting here this morning because of Genesis 6.22. Let me repeat it. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And the reason you're here today is because of the faithfulness of Noah. It's faith in God. What if Noah had gone along with the crowd? What if Noah had been more concerned about what people thought of him than he thought about doing what God told him to do? What if Noah had taken the easy road of least resistance and had said, some other time, Lord? By his actions, Noah said, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And he gave the Lord his all. I'll tell you, it cost Noah something to build this ark. It cost in humiliation before his peers. It cost him a hundred years of his life dedicated to building the ark. It cost him in time. It cost him in money. How much do you think it would cost to build an ark that has 101,000 square feet of floor space? Given current construction costs at $200 a square foot, which is low, this ark would be 20 to $30 million in value. Uh, uh, in today's money. That wouldn't be far-fetched anyway. Does it cost you to serve the Lord? It costs Noah. If you go along with the crowd, it doesn't cost you a thing. They don't give of their time. They don't give of their money. They don't give of their life to the Lord. How about you? Another thing I see in Noah is that he was not a quitter. Luke, go ahead and do the... Sorry, the pictures aren't as uh, clear as they might be. Uh, Tom, can you hit those uh, curtains for me? might help a little bit. Again, artist rendition of what it might have looked like as they were building the ark. Imagine getting this far in the ark building process. You've got the outer shell and everything is almost done. And he says, you know what? I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of it. 
and he quits. The ark would have been useless in this condition, partly finished, almost done. God had called him to complete a good work, and he did, and it resulted in the salvation of his whole family. You know, the Bible says that God saved you and that he has a plan for you to accomplish for him. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had a plan for Noah, and he gave him instructions, and he followed them to a T, and he built the ark, and he completed it to the end. God has a plan for you. Are you walking in the plan that God has for you to do? Are you involved in the works that God wants you to do? Imagine if Noah woke up in the morning after God told him to build the ark and he said to himself, ah, you know what? Let others do it. Let others do it. I'm an old man already. Let someone else do it. I've got too much on my plate. Or suppose he got up that morning and said, you know what? I'll get to it at another time when it's more convenient. It doesn't really fit my schedule right now. I didn't really have ark building on the agenda. It's just not, it doesn't fit. Imagine him saying that. Or maybe he would say something like this. I don't have to build it. I just have to be willing to build it. Have you heard that one before? I don't have to do the will of the Lord. I just have to be willing to do the will of the Lord. No, he had to build the ark. It's too hard. I've never built an ark before. And it's just going to take too long. No one else is doing it. I might appear to be odd. Yeah, you might. But Noah did build the ark. And he built it in accordance with God's instructions. He didn't cut corners. Can you imagine trusting your entire safety and the safety of your family to an ark that was built with shoddy workmanship? Can you imagine if you said, well, Lord, you know, getting the kind of wood you asked me to get is difficult. It's hard wood. It's difficult to work with. Why don't I just make it out of bamboo? Why don't I make it out of something else? And really, do I have to put pitch on the inside and the outside? Don't you realize that that is double the work? What if he did that? Is the work of the Lord important enough to you to do it right? To do it well? The Bible says in Jeremiah 48.10, Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully or slothfully. Is the work of God as important to you as your own job? Does it mean anything to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Think of how far-reaching Noah's actions were god told noah to build an ark and i believe he began to build the ark immediately and worked diligently on it for a hundred years each day was a testimony uh, certainly to those who were around him but it also showed that noah believed god every time he went out there to work on the ark he demonstrated his trust in god his belief in god his belief in what god said was going to happen his daily actions proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he took the warning of the coming judgment seriously and he was driven to complete the work that God gave him to do. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2, 5, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. 
Luke, go ahead and get the uh, the next one up. Um, that's kind of a side view looking in. It's, sorry, it's not as clear as it could be again, but God has given us an occupation, um, and we are far from completing the task. The picture here is showing that the, the work is in progress, but it's not finished, and he's still working on it, trying to show a little perspective in the, the height of it and so on. Jesus said to us, he said to the church, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Are we busy doing that work? Do you believe that there is a coming judgment and that those who are not saved are going to face that judgment? Noah did, and he built an ark. All those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord will perish just like the people of Noah's day perished. The Bible says in John 3.15, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we're not finished with the task God has given us to do. There is yet much work to be done. But a question I ask myself is, do I show by my daily actions that I truly believe that impending judgment is, is near. Judgment is near. The judgment of God is coming. Noah did, and he built the ark. Skeptics look at the ark and they say, how could so many animals fit inside of a ship like that? Again, Mendez calculates this way. He says the ark could hold, based on um, the way they, they move animals around in, in um, uh, yards and that today, the ark could hold about 40,000 sheep-sized animals, and it would only take up 33% of the ark of its capacity. This would leave more than two-thirds of the ark's interior for other uses, for living space, for food, feed, and so on. Probably far less than this amount of animals was loaded on, the, on board the ark. In reality, the ark, he says, was probably too big, not too small. This would equal, in fact... It wouldn't surprise me if the ark was too big, that the Lord had prepared room for anybody else who wanted to get in, anybody else who would believe in him, and nobody else took him up on the offer. This would equal, as we said earlier, the capacity of 569 modern railroad cars, um, a train five and a half miles long. Go ahead with the next one, Luke. Again, a little perspective on the dimensions of, of the ark. After building the ark, the Lord gave an invitation to Noah in Genesis 7. It says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy the, from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Luke, go ahead and, and do the next one. The ark had one door in it. That was by design. There was only one way into the ark. And God invited Noah to come into the ark. The ark would provide safety... For whoever went inside that one door, God provided a way of escape. But that way of escape was through the one door on that ark. 
the parallel is too striking to miss. God has provided one way of escape for people today, and that way is through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him. That's it. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Skeptics like to say, well, Christianity is so narrow-minded. The Bible is so narrow-minded. All roads lead to heaven. All religions lead to heaven. That wasn't true here. There weren't many ways for safety. There was one, and that was through the one door. It was a narrow way, and a person had to believe God to go in that ark. And it's true today, too, that there is all roads do not lead to heaven. All roads lead to destruction except for one. And that way is the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him. God, in His mercy and in His grace, provided a way of escape. He didn't have to do that. And we can say the same thing is true of the cross. God, in His mercy and His grace, provided a way of escape, and that is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid your sin's penalty so that you might not perish but have everlasting life. But the way is through Him. The way to safety, the way to security is through Him. That's by believing that His death and resurrection uh, saves you. It's what God says. People argue, the crowd can't be wrong. Well, it was wrong here. It was wrong, and there were only eight people who survived. There were only eight people who believed, and the whole world was condemned. And so the invitation goes out to you today. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, just like he said to Noah, come inside the ark. He is saying to you today, come inside the ark and be saved. And the ark is the Lord Jesus Christ represented here by, by the ark. The more, majority of people refused and they perished. And the majority of people today will do the same. Noah was odd according to the world's standards. But when you really think about it, the only acceptance that really counts is acceptance by God, not by the world. The Bible says, for those who are in Christ, they are safe and secure. That's an interesting phrase too, isn't it? The, in Ephesians, in Christ. Just like they were in the ark. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. While the whole account of the flood and, and the details of the, the ark and, and what happened during that time is all in Genesis 6 through 10, and I'd recommend it to you for your afternoon reading. Uh, it's beyond where we want to go this morning. The, the point today is really to look at the character of, of Noah. The ark rested on Mount Ararat, and uh, after they eventually got out, Noah built an altar and offered the required blood sacrifice for, of an innocent animal in his place. God was pleased with Noah's actions. And the Bible tells us that the Lord made a covenant with Noah, and the sign of the covenant was the... Um, well, we still see it today. We call it the rainbow. And in your New King James Bible, it says rainbow. I really wish it that way. Because the word in, in Hebrew is not rainbow, it's bow. Okay, Why is that so significant? Well, the significance of it is this. The bow was a warrior's bow. That's what it means. And when a warrior or a hunter went out to hunt his prey, he took his bow and he would shoot his prey and kill it. 
with his bow. He would destroy the prey. And when he was finished, he would take his bow and he would turn it upside down and put it on the pig in his home. And that would represent that he was finished. The battle was over. It's appropriate that the same word that is used for bow here is that warrior's bow. The Lord had destroyed the earth with a flood. And he hung his bow, as it were, upside down to show that the battle is over. It's finished. And that uh, he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. So you can take out the rain part if you like. We call it that. I just wish that we had left it as bow. It also proves, by the way, God placed the bow in the sky, he said, as a covenant, as a sign to us that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. This proves to me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the, that the flood was a universal flood. It was a worldwide flood because the earth has experienced numerous floods since that time, but not the whole world, localized floods. This was a worldwide flood. You know, this action by Noah was one of the greatest acts of faith in the Old Testament. We have the account of a man who faithfully served the Lord, built an ark over a period of a 100 years, saved his entire family, and proved his faith by his daily actions. But the Bible also faithfully records that Noah was a sinner, just like you and me. After this great spiritual victory came a time where he went through the valley of spiritual defeat, I think. There's a change of dispensation here as well. This is kind of an aside. I'll just mention this in passing. We've already been through the dispensation of innocence and man failed. We've been through the dispensation of conscience and man failed. Everybody did exactly what was right in his own eyes. In fact, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's where their conscience took them. Okay? Now we come into the, uh, to a new dispensation called a dispensation of human government. And we see this very clearly in this in the passage that we're looking at. Look at it this afternoon in your in your extra reading where God gives Noah certain rights and privileges that man did not have before. It says if man sheds blood by man his blood will be shed. The idea there is that God instituted capital punishment at this time for murder. And he has never withdrawn it by the way, okay? Um, that is still in effect to this day, despite what the world says, despite what people think, despite what the crowds say. Okay, God hasn't changed his opinion. By man, uh, if man sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So he instituted, in a sense, human government. This is the beginning of human government. How has government worked? Poorly, yes, I would agree. I don't care what kind of government it is, whether it's a monarchy or a democracy or whatever it is, they've all failed. All of them have terrible weaknesses, and they won't be right until the one who should be reigning is in his place, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And every knee shall bow to him. And that's the right, that's no longer purely human government, it's divine. That's actually not a monarchy, what is it called? Theocracy. Thank you. God is in control. Well, let's say the, the dispensation of human government begins, and it almost immediately fails because Noah can't even govern himself. And that's, the tr- that's true of governments today, that we cannot even govern ourselves to do what is right. 
in the eyes of the Lord. So let's take a look at Genesis 9 and beginning with verse 20. It says, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. Uh, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his younger son had done uh, what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It is a fact of life that all men are sinners. We often look at Bible characters and we romanticize them a certain way and think they were perfect. But the only perfect one was the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're not looking at him yet. Noah came from Adam too, and so did I. And so did you. We're all sinners. Don't get me wrong. Noah was a great man of faith. He lived under the mocking and rejection of his contemporaries for at least a hundred years. And then he stumbled and fell after it was all over. That pattern is actually often found. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. Maybe you've witnessed to somebody. Maybe you've led them to the Lord. Maybe you've done some other spiritual work and you've been on this spiritual high as it were and almost immediately after there is a spiritual low almost like the bottom drops out and that's the time you need to be careful particularly careful that you don't fall into sin noah had been some might say on a spiritual summit and after being justified by god in the sight of all of those who perished uh, he fell into the valley of sin When there's opposition in our life, we tend to be spiritually strong. Have you found that? We sometimes want to avoid opposition. We sometimes want to avoid conflict or problems. But it's actually when we're strongest. If you look at countries where the church is underground, where it's banned, where you can't uh, meet, the church thrives. It grows. The testing of our faith produces endurance and so on, the Scripture says. But when the opposition is over, when it ceases, we often uh, fall, how easy it is to fall in that condition. I think Noah simply became insensitive to sin. Have you ever experienced that in your life, where you just, you just become insensitive, desensitized to sin? He became a, fa- a farmer. Nothing wrong with that. Good hard work. He planted a vineyard. There's nothing wrong with that. He drank from the wine and became drunk. Now, there's something wrong with that. There's a problem in Noah's life. Wine had captivated him. Now, we don't know for how long he was captivated by wine. As you read this, it looks like it was a one-incident thing. 
I, I don't think it was, but let's just assume it was. Let's just say it was, given the benefit of the doubt. Many years had gone by here, and I know that because as you look at the passages surrounding this, we see that there is now a history of other people on the earth. Um, Noah's sons had their own children at this point. Uh, Ham had at least four boys at this point, and uh, the youngest uh, was named Canaan. The fourth son was named Canaan. So Noah was not only a father, at this point he was also a grandfather, and the population was, was growing. How long had the wine captivated him? I don't know. But I know this, at least in this case, he became drunk. He was no longer in control. The wine controlled him. We call it today being under the influence. <laughs> it's a euphemism for being drunk. It's a sin that destroys homes. It destroys families. It takes thousands of lives in accidents. Tom can attest to that as seeing uh, accidents almost every day of his uh, police career. It ruins lives. Drugs, alcohol, substance abuse all lead to destruction. In the New Testament, believers are commanded, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't let substances control you. Let the Holy Spirit control you. In either case, you're not in control. But let it be the Holy Spirit who controls you. And when the Holy Spirit controls you, we'll all know it. Because the fruit of the Spirit will be evident. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That is the kind of life the Lord wants us to live. Tom will never chase after you and arrest you if you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? You know, it's a tragedy. I've seen it in as I've observed life, and I see the tendency in all of us, I see the tendency in myself to be desensitized to sin. We become used to it. We become used to it. I hope that we don't flirt with sin and give it place in our hearts, in our minds, in our ways. While he was drunk, he stripped off his clothes and he lay naked in his tent. His son Ham entered into the tent and he saw his father there. Now there are many commentators who suggest all kinds of evil took place at this time, but the scripture is very carefully worded to guard against that. And there's no room for anything other than what it plainly says here. But we look at a passage like this and we go, okay, what's the big deal? So he lay naked in his tent. I think that shows us how desensitized to sin we've become. We're so insensitive to sin that the passage no longer shocks us. Why is that? Because we are bombarded daily with TV, with movies, with television ads uh, and commercials about every private issue imaginable. And we become desensitized to sin. Perhaps we become so used to sin that it no longer shocks us to hear these things. And when we're in that condition, it's easier, easier for us to fall into those sins as well because we've become used to them. Take heed, the Scripture warns. Take heed, lest you fall. 
not only did Ham intrude on his father's privacy, the wording of the passage suggests that he went out to mock his father. He went out to broadcast is really the word that is used. So he told his brothers, yes, but it seems like he went out to laugh about it in the presence of everybody else and said, you know, basically I think he said to his, his other brothers, go in and take a look at the old man. Ha, ha, ha. You know, that kind of a thing. They were sensitive enough to it that they respected their father. They honored him by not looking at his nakedness. And the way they went about it shows the seriousness uh, with which they took this. And they b- walked backwards. They did not move their heads to look back. They put the garment on their shoulders, looking back, went back, and they basically dropped it over him to cover him and went out without seeing him. When Noah awoke from his drunkenness, he learned what had happened. Again, we don't know the length of time between him awaking out of his drunken stupor and what happens next. In the scripture, oftentimes events merge together very quickly and you assume that it takes place instantly right after one another. Well, as I've already mentioned, these events of him coming out of the ark, it wasn't the next day that he became drunk because a generation had grown up already. So there are time frames here. And one of the things that's skeptics and and uh, people who don't like the scripture like to point out is yeah look at this he's cursing canaan canaan had nothing to do with this it was ham canaan's father that went in so why is he cursing why is the old guy cursing you know canaan his son well i think the answer is pretty simple i think noah at this point as we as we look at the passage at this point once again, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is, will become obvious in a minute. And he spoke not just a curse and a blessing, but he prophesied. And you cannot prophesy unless you're filled with the Spirit. Okay? So he spoke. And, this, and what he spoke was a curse on Canaan and a blessing on the other two. And we're going to talk about this uh, for just a minute here. So he awoke... Whatever length of time, it might have been the same day. More likely, it was, it was some time that had passed. Noah observed in Canaan the characteristic that he saw in Ham. Ham was uh, callous, I would say, about his father. Uh, callous about uh, sexual things, I would say. And he saw that same characteristic in Canaan, the fourth son. As a prophet... He spoke about the future of Canaan, the son, and the nation that would come from him. He spoke about Shem as the person and the nation that would come from him. And the same with Japheth. And as you look at the passage and the prophecy, it's very clear that's exactly what has happened in history and continues to happen to this day. Let's take a look real quickly at it, and then we'll, uh, we'll end. The curse was on Canaan, not on Ham. Ham had four sons. Three of his sons weren't cursed. It was Canaan that was cursed. Um, The scripture emphasizes several times in this section that it was Canaan, it was Canaan, it was Canaan. And what God is doing here is he is preparing the way for, for us as we carry on in the scriptures in both Abraham's life and then in the life of the nation of Israel to see why Canaan needed to be destroyed. The elements of the problem started back here in Noah's day. And as Canaan, the nation, developed, 
the Canaanites, you've heard of them, right? Okay, they developed into a very wicked, wicked, immoral, and ungodly people. Now, God was merciful to them. We read this later in Scripture. For 400 years, he waited for them to repent, and they didn't. And so he destroyed them using the nation of Israel. So I'm getting way ahead of myself. But the point is that the beginning of the stream is here, here in, in Noah's day. And we see the outcome of that as time goes on. Okay? So God is pointing out the tendency that Noah saw in his grandson Canaan that would come to fruition as the Canaanites became the enemies of Israel. And as God pens these words, he's setting the stage for what is to come in Abraham's life and, as I say, ultimately the destruction of the Canaanite nations from the promised land. It's a future prophecy. The second prophecy has to do with Shem. And interestingly enough, God, Noah is not blessing Shem. Did you notice that? He's blessing the God of Shem. <laughs> okay? Um, the blessing to Shem would come from their association with God himself. The people of Shem, as you follow their history, are the Israelites. And their blessing comes solely based on their relationship with God. Okay? The Jews are from the line of Shem. Ultimately, God was the God of the Jews, and they still are his earthly people, albeit set aside from the place of blessing at this time, but soon to be restored as they finally acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, as their Messiah. And when they do, they will be, again, uh, in that rightful place of blessing. But he says, blessed be the God of Shem. Blessed be God <laughs> that would work with people like this and people like us. Finally, the blessing comes on the uh, on Japheth. His name means to enlarge. And so there's a little play on words here. And it says, may, may to enlarge his, his uh, name, Japheth, be enlarged. And so it's a, it's a play on, on his name. Noah prophesies that Japheth's blessing, interestingly enough, will come as a result of his relationship with Shem. Being in the tents of Shem refers to being under their uh, care or under their, their uh, privilege. Where does our blessing come from? The Lord Jesus, who was of the line of Shem. Yeah, I mean, ultimately here. We're not at David yet, but yes, that's true too. But ultimately from the line of Shem. Our blessing comes through the line of Shem uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Our association with him, the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, it results in our blessing. And that's what uh, Noah, prophesying into the future, saw again the Lord's blessing would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't exhausted the story of Noah, but I trust you've, been, you've benefited from learning a little bit about his life and some of the implications that we uh, can consider for our own lives. Better to be thought as odd by the world and accepted by the Lord. We can also avoid the failures of Noah. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we can learn from the mistakes of Noah's son. The Bible says this, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, 
lest you too be tempted. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we have considered the life of Noah this morning that we might be men and women who take a stand, even if we are considered to be awed by this generation. Help us, Lord, to be men and women of faith who diligently, carefully, daily live our lives by faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that we might seek clearly to uh, find the work that you have set aside for us to do and that we might do it with all of our hearts. Lord, we just say with the songwriter, take our lives, Lord, let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.